0: If I do a bad show, I should lop off a finger and go, I'm so sorry. I I love them so much. I fear them. I fear failing them. I obsess over the audience. I'm
1: Don Hall, and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. And welcome to the podcast. This will be brief. I started this second season with a series of stories from my friend Joe Shanahan of Metro Chicago. If you haven't listened to it, you should go back and listen. It's a pretty extraordinary little episode. Now, as we hit the penultimate episode of this season, I wanted to revisit Joe and rebroadcast an onstage interview I had in the Attic Theater of the Metro with he and a personal friend of mine, Henry Rollins. Now, this was originally broadcast on General Admission, which was a WBEZ Arts podcast I co-hosted a few years ago, but has since been put to bed and deleted. So I figured it was appropriate to go ahead and reuse the audio so that you could hear this interview and it would be out there again. So the first voice you hear is Joe.
2: I have all the really high-tech information right here I used to write every single show down on a 3x5 card after the show what the ticket prices were how many people were paid and basically what I paid the band I still have these little cards I'm gonna show them to you tonight it's pretty interesting (laughs) but that particular time I believe this is before like the agency world this is more about us calling SST getting a hold of either Greg Or Doug? Chuck. Or Chuck. Chuck, yeah. And and saying, you know, we'd love to see this band come through Chicago, you know. So as interest began to grow, you guys were a touring machine. I mean, this was something that you guys did because it was your calling. Yep. And it was how you made your living. And being on the road meant you had money in your pocket. If we
0: didn't tour, we didn't eat. It it was basically down to that.
2: Yeah. So So that that particular uh, era, I mean, that's an early era. That's when we're... You know, I mean, there's holes in the walls. We, there's floods in the basement. I mean, this building was a wreck. I mean, we, we didn't have, you know, the, the gas didn't work sometimes, you know. So we were kind of, you know, just getting our, 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 our bearings and our feet under us. And what was interesting about that culture was that the bands were also in that same boat. We were all sort of in it together. When I talk about sort of the, the currency of community... I think it's really important to go back to to those early 80s and, you know, up until like the late 80s and that was, the scene was shared. And we all were in it together.
0: Right, Henry? Yeah, it was uh, different lifelines coming together. And the source was, uh, the idea was, we need money, not so we can get rich and and sit around, but so we can sustain. And if you want to have cool bands come to this venue next year, they got to come this year. And the bands need the venues and the venues need the bands. And there was no contempt. There was just, we need each other. And so this mutual need to sustain was a really good thing because it was win-win for everyone because right. all these bands want to do is play and have someone, get an audience and like get a, have a life in right. music. And the better venues, like the Metro, they're actually about a love of music and culture. And some venues are just about the money. And you can tell when you get in. Right. You realize the owner just wants the men to come and the women to come and to buy beer and the music is a sideshow where the people who sustained realize that the music and the art is the the show, and people will come if you bring good things. Right. And so the venue has to trust the audience and the band. The band has to trust the venue. And so you have a lot of trust going on and a lot of, I hate the word, but there's a lot of faith in that this thing can go forward. Because if it fails on you, all of a sudden you have a lease on this building. That leaks. That has problems, and now you'll be in debt for the rest of your life. Right. So if I don't come through, if they don't come through, you're out of business, I'm out of business, and the audience moves somewhere else. Exactly. And so it was one of those things where everyone realized if we don't get along and and have some miracles and kick a lot of ass and do really well, no one gets anything going forward. And I think the audience has got it. The band's got it, and the the venue's got it. This venue got it. Black Flag survived on good promoters, good agents, and honest venues. And, And this was an oasis for us. We'd get fed. We'd get paid honestly. Because we're not making enough to buy apartments we are going gas drum heads bass strings a meal and the metro is one of those places you just knew everything was going to be okay and that's why we played here like up to three times a year mm-hmm. yeah we like did laps around america and always landed here it's about and, every six months or so that
2: we would see you guys yeah. come through you know yeah uh, and, and one other thing that i would like to add to that is that back then you know there was a lot of i'm going to say violence connected to the music but there was a lot of there were some knuckleheads that would come to some of the shows and we didn't have even a barricade in metro we have one now because of all the insurance issues and things like that but back then henry would be the guy or a guy like jeff pizzati who would like as the crowd would get completely riled up he'd come out and say okay everybody no one no one can get hurt here we gotta we gotta take care of each other and what he was really saying was we want the venue to be here the next time we come back. Because if shit goes down and the police come in and take the whole thing down, hey, that could be the end of the scene. And so, in a way, that was also happening. We appreciated the audience as much as we appreciated the music, as we appreciated the the moment. That communal musical moment was ferocious back then, ferocious.
0: Yeah, and I knew how to put out fires. (laughs) I think you still do. (laughs) Well, sometimes you'd be at a venue and there'd be people acting out. And the thing is going south. Like, OK, the, the cops will be here any minute, because the promoter, he doesn't want his venue damaged. Like, so he's going to pull the plug on the show. Right. And so sometimes the opening band, would there would be some harshness going on. I'd walk out there and go, all right, here's how it has to be. And, and I'm young with a bunch of people my own age. And I'm, I'm having to reason with a bunch of fellow yeah. savages. <laughs> and, um, and I savages. said, look, you know, you want us to go on? You guys got to cool it. Like, figure out where you are. You're responsible for this. Like, get a clue. This isn't your parents' place. This is your place. Right. Treat it as such. And you'd see people kind of go like, ding, the light bulb goes on. And right. all of a sudden, some guy, like, you know, turns the other guy loose. And they're right. like, right. right. I'm like, thank you. Right. Like, do you want? if you want to do this next week or next year, be cool. Right. This is yours to lose. Yeah. And I think it was punk rock yeah. that really taught The punters, the audience—that was their show. Absolutely, because you know those days they were involved. Yes, and in those days, you know, there's no rock star separation. We're not leaving in a covered wagon. You walk right through the audience (laughs) to start loading out your gear through the audience. Right, and someone's like would help you with an amp. Someone that was right there all night is now helping you carry your wounded gear to your crap van. (laughs) (laughs) And and so there's no separation.
2: You would stand in between the Metro and the G-Man and stand and talk to people. For however long people were out there, yeah, because you were on your way to the Nick city, but the fans—it wasn't like fans; they were just—they were us. We, we, were, well, there was no.
0: no us and them. It fe- was fellow celebrants. It was just us. Yeah, there, yeah. and to—I'm 55, and I've been doing shows since I was 19. I still have that mentality. I have no idea of a difference between myself and the audience so that's what i come from the audience has been redefining themselves with me because now they wait for me at train stations airports and hotels Mm -hmm. with photos i'm like okay (laughs) that's a little intense how you knew i was landing in this plane that happened yesterday i'm like wow okay you're Got some interesting 4-1-1, <laughs> but in my mind, I, I am just one of the audience members who's on stage that night, because if I'm local in Los Angeles, I go to gigs all the time, and I see bands like yeah. a fraction of my age. I'm usually the oldest person in the room, sure. but one night every other year, so I'm on that stage, so I see no real difference between yeah. me and the audience, right. and in those days, you often slept at one of the audience members' apartment Absolutely. or in their dorm. or in their parents' house. So there was no separation between you and the audience. Well, it's an interesting
1: thing because uh, in preparation for this here, I've been a fan of yours since I was 18. I just turned 50, so, you know. And uh, and knowing that I was going to get to sit down and have a conversation with the two of you, I got a little jacked up, and then last night went to your show last night, and it suddenly, and I, I noticed this when I got home, is it demystified the experience because you are very much just a guy, doing your show, yep. and, uh, and that was, I, I think that's one of the things, the authenticity that you bring to the stage actually does sort of like, oh, okay, because I was sort of like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to talk to Henry.
0: whoa. I'm nobody from nowhere. You know, I'm from the minimum wage working world. I'm just an insanely lucky guy with a big mouth, and, and so <laughs> I, I have no illusions as to where I'm from and what I could probably go back to if I could find an opening at Starbucks and to be a barista. And I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying I, I come from a, a realistic world of small apartments and punching a time clock and all of that. And and so that's what comes off of me. Punk rock, the idea of punk rock made things possible for me. Because I used to see Led Zeppelin and Ted Nugent, these arena rock bands. You're looking at it like, I could never do that because... That can never happen. But when you'd go see the cramps of the bad brains, you're like, well, these guys are still amazing, but this is possible. Music, it's not an unassaultable summit. You can get there. Mm -hmm. And I've always come from just, I'm just some guy who went for it. But um, it comes from punk rock and those roots of the promoter, the venue, the audience, the bands kind of. Coming from the same level playing field, and one day the guy who came to your show two years later, he books your show. We would get some young, or he's in a band that's supporting Henry
2: downstairs, and that would happen as well. That you remember, it was really important to your ethos to like find out what was sort of happening locally. Absolutely, who's going to be the support band? Yep, it was important to sst It was important to 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 the guys in Black Flag, and we would say, okay, we have a a series of bands, almost like a pool, like here's our scene. Let's make sure that Naked Reagan gets on or Big Black or, or whoever to make sure that again we're growing that. We're growing that um uh I don't use the word organically, but really we're pushing something into that commerce and yeah. that and that and breathing into that art based on the fact that you're gonna sell six, seven, eight hundred tickets right. or even further. And then you have a band that would come in and play yeah. for 30 minutes. And that guy was probably
0: loading your gear
2: yeah. a yep. year before yeah. that.
0: And, and Dikowski, you know, our bass player and agent type, he was really brutal. He said, yeah. like, we would have these good bands open for us. He said, Dick, I, uh, I, I said um, one day, like this is great. Why are you so concentrating on local talent? He said, because one day, if everything goes right, you might be opening for them and you'll be grateful for there the gig. And mm-hmm. I was like... Ah, oh, he's like, yeah, you better get a clue. <laughs> okay, so. Because um, <laughs> that's the real world. That's the, real world. That's
1: yeah. the real world. Yeah, the real world. So in 80, uh, what is it? In 86, you'd, you'd pretty much done Black Flag here, and then Joe booked you as. One of your talking shows, and according to Joe, when you and I talked, that was the first time you'd had a talking show here. I believe.
2: Well, there was we had a little conversation earlier about Lydia Lunch, and she was uh, a friend of of Henry's, and she was uh, kind of as I call her, the East Village Oracle in New York City. Spoken word was something was really important at that at that time because there were real uh, poets that were in the rock sort of world or in the punk rock world. And um, when we found out that Henry was doing that, we jumped at the chance to actually have um, you do Metro. And um, that was the first sort of... There's a guy who's been in a band, and he's going to get up and he's going to tell us a story. He's going to talk about his book or tell us a poem. It was remarkable. And that was how you also tie your touring and your spoken word together. Because one had to exist with the other financially as well as artistically as well. So the the story begins to continue to grow from one
0: to the other. And it was in the Metro when I did that show then. That was the first time I actually made enough money to pay for my meal, my next Amtrak ticket, and actually have some left over. (laughs) And I I was in disbelief. I'm not trying to make this all about money, but when you are living gig to gig, it is... All I want to do is pay the phone bill, and not get booted out of my apartment, which holds the entirety of my book company, like in eight corners, like these boxes of books. I'm sending books to people with in, inside out grocery bags as jiffy packs. I can't afford the jiffy packs. And so I made money in this venue, like hundreds of people showed up. I'm right. like, damn.
2: Right. And
0: it was a miracle. So not that it's
2: all about money, but I do have this little (laughs) card. And I pulled them up because I wanted to look at these again. But that was uh, December 5th, 1986. You made $500. It was a $5 $5 ticket. And there was another thing that our ethos was also about, that we don't want to charge what Ted Nugent and Led Zeppelin were charging. We wanted to keep it. I mean, like, when we got to a $10 ticket for a band, it was like, oh, my God. It's like, they're so big. But it was important for us to make sure that a living could be made for the artist. Our staff could make some money or get paid and 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 have the audience enjoy it yeah. at a price that was really affordable. And the time, five bucks, you know, see someone talk. You know, good. What's that really mean? Everyone walked out going, that was mind-blowing. Because then you turned it into a full
1: complement to everything else you were doing. <laughs> okay, so... You're Black Flag. You haven't gotten a Rollins Band. You're like, I'm, and you're looking for things to do. What made you think that people would sit and listen to you talk?
0: Uh, sheer chutzpah. <laughs> just, uh, just, what, just being fearless on stage. And there's a promoter in, in Los Angeles, and he would do these shows where you get like 10 people on stage. Everyone gets five minutes or everyone gets 10 yeah. minutes. Oh, like a slam. Uh, uh, yes, and uh, chuck Dukowski would be part of these mm-hmm. a guy named harvey Kubernetes, this promoter really amazing guy friends of the stooges friends of the doors he, he was a real la insider back in the day and i would go with Dukowski and watch him do these shows because it was in hollywood we go into the big city we were yeah. beach people and so one night he does his thing and harvey says like next week we're doing a show you do 10 minutes i'm like i don't what am i gonna do he's like you have a very big mouth and we're paying (laughs) we're paying 10 bucks ahead i'm like oh i'll take your i'll take that money because that's like that's two meals three meals And so the next week, I'm on stage, and I read a thing I'd written, and I told this crazy story about how a neo-Nazi guy in a car had tried to run over Greg Ginn at band practice, because we had, we lived in it, we practiced in a gang neighborhood, and the Sons of Samoa, Samoan gang, they would come and hang out at band practice. It's their neighborhood. They want to come in, they're coming in. And so white, it's the local Long Beach white power branch, uh, found out that we have non-whites at our band practice, and they were angry because mm-hmm. uh, we're falling out of their value system, mm-hmm. like we're friends of theirs, right. <laughs> and poor Greg was walking to the liquor store to buy some orange juice, and this guy comes on the sidewalk and tries to mow Greg down, and Greg, thankfully, is agile, and he runs up on a lawn. And so I told this story, which for us is another Tuesday in the life of Black Flag. I'm like, yeah, the neo-Nazi missed him by that much. And the audience is like, ah! I'm like, yep, yeah, 10 minutes is up. I'm gone. And they're like, no, no, do another one. And I said, well, my time is up. And afterwards, people came up and was like, when's your next show? I said, well, we're on tour. I'm like, no, 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 your next show, we just talk. Yeah. I go, there is no next one. I got this $10 bill, and I'm out. Yeah. We <laughs> <laughs> going to get coffee. Denny's, Denny's is calling. I have thrown it out, and I'm and done. Yeah. I see that grand slam floating <laughs> in. And, and Harvey said, that was really good, and everyone loved it. Would you want to do, we'll give you 20 minutes, and you'll open for one of my poets. And I went, okay, and then a year, well, a few months into that, their poets, the poets are now opening for me, which they didn't take very well. (laughs) And that that was like 83, 84. Mm -hmm. And that's when I met Lydia Lunch, and I learned a lot from her. And by 85, I did my first cross-country tour in a a Black Flag van. I had to rent from Black Flag Inc. (laughs) and pay in full you gotta go to
2: the board board meeting yeah (laughs) and
0: um then in 86 the band had broken up and i'm starting to form my own band and i just came out of the studio finished my first solo record and i said "Uh uh-oh no money and i'm calling people and i got a gig here and that's that Mm -hmm. december show
2: that's exactly and
0: then by spring of 87 the rollins band is on the road and years later we're back here again exactly yeah Yeah. so it's But you keep seeing these people over and over again. And I was very smart when I was age 20 and growing up on the road. I realized I, I should not write on the walls. I should never be late. I should never abuse the, the staff mm-hmm. or, yeah, because I'm going to see these people again and again and again and again. And that has proven to be true. And I realized I'm going to live my life on the road in venues with audiences. That's what I'm here to do. You're built for it. Yeah. And these are temporary homes of mine. So don't screw up the carpet. Right. And whenever I see bands like, oh, they kicked the hole in the wall, I go, really? How? Yeah. They're not thinking strategically that venue will never have you back again. Right. Like, how could you torch your house? Right. What it's you changed. smartly have done
2: is you have just, you know, you don't burn a bridge, you build a bridge. Bingo. Well, and yeah. it, you, just and keep, you maintain it, it, it. And those bridges just keep moving. And that's why you can continue to continue to do what you do with, with ease. Because, again, people want to work with you it's interesting so we go back to the idea of like one in the 80s and how we were working kind of an underground system of you know sort of scenes that were in new york and l.a and chicago and detroit now because i mean today i was actually on your website and just saw like how robust it is i mean quite honestly that's been terrific for you i Mm -hmm. mean there's a real ability to to reach so many people yeah the internet served me very well yeah yeah yeah. and 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 in musically do you think it served you well? Uh,
0: well, I was not really doing music. I stopped doing music years ago. Mm-hmm. Just because one day I woke up with no lyrics. And my choice was either go on stage and be an oldies act. And mm-hmm. I don't feel old. There you go. Uh, but I don't want to be like, hey, kids, remember this one? Mm-hmm. And then the audience mm-hmm. would go, actually, no, but my father might. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I don't want to be wheezing through the oldies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just Because it wore me out as a 20-something. I don't want it to kill me as a 50-something. And so I stopped doing music. And so it was later that the internet really came to the aid of musicians mm-hmm. where here's a new song I'll put it on my Bandcamp page and you can buy that and that'll help get sure. us on the road. Mm-hmm. I um, I come from a uh, musically from a far more analog mm-hmm. we're doing the mailing list, fold, yeah. staple, bulk <laughs> mail uh yeah. kind of thing. Oh, yeah. But it has helped the talking shows
1: earlier we were talking about exactly. commerce and we kind of backed off and then we talked about commerce and now we're talking about the internet and i i'm getting to the section that i think is interesting now it's today we've visited the past vince gill uh said this and i like this quote the devaluation of music is and what it's now deemed to be worth is laughable to me my single costs 99 cents that's what a single cost in 1960 um, some would say that this fart app, oh, it's on my phone I can get an app for 99 cents that makes fart noises, the same price as the thing I create and speak to the world with. Some would say the fart app is more important. It's an awkward time. Creative brains are being sorely mistreated. Does
0: that sound right, and how did we get there? Well, it, it sounds like reality in that the two, the two things have the same cost, but they have a different intellectual weight, and so... I would say to Vince Gill, I feel your pain, but you say you're a singer-songwriter, right? So shut up and sing your song. <laughs> In that, like, at some point, you just got to get on with it, and the right. technology is what it is. Uh, and, and like you say you want to be on stage, so get up there, son, uh, and stop quibbling. I, I get it. I agree with yeah. him. But at some point, you have to go, Like that's the bigger wave, and either it crushes you or you ride it. And unfortunately, uh, young people listen to those wretched headphones with a B on it, and they listen to MP3s on their phone. And I want to tear all this equipment off them and go, no, no, no. You're not listening to music. You're listening to some computerized thing, and you're listening to music on your phone. Mm hmm. you yeah. like get those things off your head get that the just use your phone for talking now and then Buy Stop a record stop a taking turntable. photos of your yes thank you <laughs> and like i'd love to start some kind of fund for young people to have an and the analog the analog music rescue association <laughs> we, we, we we airlift you know stereo equipment and like and deploy <laughs> and like kids run after little parachutes of turntables and like yay analog, what you're supposed to be hearing. Right. Uh, however, like I, I sell more downloads. I sell more downloaded downloads of my books sure. than I sell physical copies of my right. books. Some of my older titles, this woman, Heidi, who runs all my companies, she said, here's a decision you have to make. Here's, an older, here's one of your older titles. It sells a few hundred copies a year. Either we make another run and paper and glue is very expensive, mm-hmm. or this thing goes out of print and lives in the ebook world i'm like wow she goes your decision your money but the our merch company doesn't want to use all the space because they're used to cloth moving through all of a sudden they need an extra warehouse for you and your forest Mm -hmm. of paper Mm -hmm. and i said damn we just have to be in 2016 let it go into print as an ebooks now this book will go out of the physical world that i grew up with like i bought a book i mark it up i carry it in my backpack i touch it to I download it, and that's where me and Vince Gill are on the same page. However, I just have to let the present be the present and laugh at the fact that you can get an app that has a bong <laughs> rip sound for the same <laughs> price, and that will be downloaded. But I've been living in that world forever, In that someone, I, my, my, my joke that's very uh, demonstrative is I always say the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and I'm not putting them down, the Red Hot Chili Peppers give away more copies of any new record of theirs in promotion than I sell of my next record. And that is the fact. Yeah. And so you must put things in perspective. And if in 2016 we're streaming music mm-hmm. and the bands are getting eight cents per million sales, mm-hmm. I'm sorry about that. Maybe right. I would, that would inspire the true fans to go to the gig and buy the T-shirt and keep this band on the road. You know,
2: it's interesting so. because I think it goes back to the 80s in a sense of that that idea that, the real currency was playing live. Yep. And so, you know, Wayne Kramer from the MC5 has this great thing. He says, you know, the only thing better than music is live music. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's true because, I mean, and that's what's not being, you know, monetized, digitized, a live performance. Right. It, whether you'd spoken word or whether it's the bands that are playing Metro tonight, trust me, People still will, thank God, you all want to, right, <laughs> come and see that. Because it's important. Well, it's, it's realer
0: it's, than but, real. Because it's real. No, it, exactly. It, it's it's realer real, than the a difference.
2: Record. So, like, you know, back in the day when Warner Brothers was signing every, every punk rock band up, and, you know, some of, the, some of the bands made some money, but a lot of them didn't. The point is, is that records, that is whatever. But the live experience is where
0: you make your money. Yep. you got to go out and make it. You, 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 know? you make the most important thing. You make the connection yeah you know, and because it, it thankfully it's not about money all the time, and so you make the human connection you and an audience no that's question. a relationship absolutely It is the most profound relationship right. I have in my life mm-hmm. and I, i'm a very dysfunctional person, perfect first stage <laughs> but and i don't understand affection or love i, I, I don't really ha- i don't really understand it, but if there's anything I truly love, mm-hmm. it's my audience sure. and when I say my i 'm not trying to be proprietary i 'm just saying I love these I people, right. they show up right if i do a bad show i should lop off a finger and go i'm so sorry right (laughs) i i I love them so much i fear them i fear failing them i obsess over the audience was I, you know, was I nice enough to that one last kid I met on my way to the car? Like, uh, did, did I sign my name right on, on this record? I take all of this stuff really seriously. Because sure. people have trusted me with their night, with their mm-hmm. time. That's why I, I travel hard and live hard to bring kick-ass stories to the stage. That's all right, right. Now, one of the things in talking to Joe and all the stuff I've read about
1: the interviews and things like that, that I thought was very interesting is that you have something in common that... I didn't see coming was that you were always just as one of the things as a part of your personality in 35 years you've always just been looking to create things you're just looking to do what's the next thing going on and I guess my question is twofold is how does that work I mean I mean is there so many do you have so many things you want to try that you fuck so many up that we don't see and the ones that we see are the ones that succeed or you know how does that work how does your creative process you first work? <laughs> and then the second thing is, is it kind of a lonely thing to be a shark that's got to constantly be moving?
2: Well, I will tell you, from my experience, this place is not about me. It is about the people that work here. And we work together. My, my staff, my colleagues, they're, they're family. It, we do this together. They're like-minded. So the like-mindedness of it is what gives me the energy to keep doing and, and challenging all of us, and they challenge me back. They're great ideas. The woman that put this together tonight mm-hmm. is a good example. I mean, she's been with the company for many years, and this was an idea of hers. I was like, I am for it. How do we do it? How do we figure it out? Let's make it happen. So my point is, is that the audience, is as Henry was so eloquent, I mean, I love them too. I mean, I feel that I want to have them enjoy their day here or their night here at metro um i want it to be affordable i want it to be clean i want it to be safe so the creative piece is purely it's personal still it's personal taste i go after things that other one other clubs won't mm-hmm. they just don't they just say oh what is that or they don't want to take a chance possibly but or they don't see the money in it there's a lot of places, I mean, Big Corporate America, you know, House of Blues, that kind of thing. There, It's all about, you know, they'll put, you know, a Def Leppard cover band on a Friday night. I, I'm, I'm not quite there yet. I'll do <laughs> maybe a fake R.E.M. band because I want to goof around with my birthday or something. But, you know, I think that that's part of it is that it's the challenge that we create day to day with the staff, with my colleagues.
0: Yeah, for me, I, I work primarily alone because uh, I'm on, alone on stage. I travel all over the world, all seven continents, about 90 countries. And most of the time, I'm just alone with a backpack and a camera. And I write. And that you know, no one can help you write, really. You're just sitting there. It's a lonely job, I guess. Uh, for me, what you see, wh- a book comes out, something comes out. It's that I came up with that idea three years ago, and it takes that long. Right now, I'm working on four different books. All four of them will come out, I guarantee it unless I get killed first. And so they will come out. Will anyone read them? Don't take this the wrong way. I don't care. This is what I do. And at some point in your life, you might or you might not. If you decide this is who I am and this is what I do, so I get up every day and I just damn do it. And it's not about how many people read it. It's about I am doing this and I'm putting the dick thing out. And so whatever you see come out is because I came up with the idea and i invested are there ideas that fail yeah a few things i've done it didn't i i had an idea and i i look back at it like well maybe that was a little self indulgent or maybe that was a, a little i don't know midlife crisisy or something i don't yeah. know but for mo- for the most part it, it takes so many years to write a book if it if it's not a good idea, it starts listing to the side about two years into the process. Mm -hmm. And you have to be brave enough to go like, I'm gonna take 25,000 words and trash them. And Mm -hmm. that is like ripping out your spleen. Mm -hmm. And you have to like, that was a year and a half of like sweating this out. Damn it, it's just not good. And I have, well over 100,000 words, 100 or hundreds of thousands of words that sit on my computer to this day and every few years I go back to it like <laughs> nope, it's just Still, not yeah. good. And <laughs> <clears throat> so this, the editing
2: process for you that's big.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's that's uh, it's got to
2: have a, it's got to be a, of a standard that you can stand and say it.
0: Yeah, I, I and I have to be able to release it and not victimize someone by having them right. read my you shouldn't <laughs> yeah, you, you shouldn't torture your your the reader like wow this sucks why'd you do this to me like i i invested my time with this book like i got stuff to do and this thing is like so mediocre i want to bash you over the head with it and um i can't do that to people well i can't willingly do that to people i probably do anyway uh, it is what it is. So I, the criteria for success on both of yours is really not. It's really
1: not about financial gain. It's not. About, not even gain. Just sort of that kind of success
0: is not the highest. Right. Your criteria for success is: Do you like it? You, you, oh, yeah. you will not believe what I'm going to tell you, but it's true. Um, I do. I never, ever, ever think of money when I, I i do anything I like the, the the tour the the road manager he's that that's his world he comes back with the facts so you go like okay so uh tonight in holland which i was just there the other night you sold this place out and then some that was all those people standing in the back and your guarantee was this and you're not going to believe this but you made double the money and you walked out with uh, uh, whatever it is and like that information goes in one ear and out the other and I'll make some joke like, well, extra cheese on my next pizza. Because he knows that I don't care. But it's his job to tell me. Yeah. I have no earthly idea how much money I have. Yeah. I know there's a lot. <laughs> which is good. That's a plus. Like, like a yeah. lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah. But it doesn't affect what I do yeah, or like how it. I do it. My only purpose in life tomorrow is my purpose in life today. i got to hit that stage at 830 and not screw it up for two hours and just deliver. And that's the only thing on my mind. What the paycheck is, I have. I can't tell you how uninteresting that is to me. And that's a luxurious point of view. And that. it's to the benefit of my audience because I can just, now I work harder than ever.
2: So that that's the creative currency that we were talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what
0: he's earned. So now I can go at the speed of my imagination and my ambition to create the next thing. Gimme, 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 need some more. Gimme, 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 don't ask for.
1: And that's it. Do I need to add anything else? I don't think so. Truly, the pleasure of sitting on stage and hearing stories from two legends of music were all mine. The pleasure was mine alone. So thanks to Joe, Henry, and Stacy Marquardt, who arranged it, and thank you for listening. In two weeks, I close out the second season with lessons of my 52 years. It drops February 5th, and my 52nd birthday is February 3rd. I've been cataloging the things I learn each year on my birthday every year since I was in the 8th grade, and I figured this podcast is a perfect place to throw out some of the wisdom I've gleaned from year 52. It was quite a year. I hope you listen. Peculiar Journeys is a bi-weekly storytelling podcast produced, voiced, and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in Wicker Park, Chicago. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or catch it on SoundCloud. You can assist Peculiar Journeys financially if you can by becoming a VIP patron on www.patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys.